0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning again. We had a great, great time of praise and worship this morning. Uh, Loved hearing from Joab. Joab. And uh, I want to really encourage you again to come tonight. I really, I want you there. Yeah, you'll be blessed in a number of ways. Um, and I always uh, I said this Wednesday, I might have said it last Sunday, I know I said it Wednesday, it's, it's good to fellowship with believers uh, of other stripes and just kind of remind ourselves of the things we have in common. And, uh, and again, I'm preaching and I want a good hometown crowd there, all right? So, We are going to wrap up 1 Corinthians today, I think. Considering the content of this chapter, what I really want to do is put 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, on the shelf and save it for Easter. Uh, Because just reading this chapter is a fantastic Easter message, resurrection message. But before we get there, kind of put it in context so you'll see something here. Uh, I want to look back briefly at what Paul has written in this letter. You remember, we can see from the clues that he gives us uh, in this letter to the church at Corinth that he's responding to a letter that they had brought him, asking him some questions, making some accusations, pointing some things out. As, you know, And Paul, as the founding apostle of this church, as their spiritual father, answers their questions, corrects them on some things, and uh, is very blunt but very fatherly, uh, but he opens up with, uh, with, a, with a condemnation of sectarianism, that they are breaking up into different factions, uh, trying to rank themselves or place themselves over other believers in their midst because of who baptized them. Who baptized you? Well, Paul baptized me. Uh, Peter baptized me and so on. And he says, man, that's sin. Don't even get into that. You need to keep your eyes and your focus on Jesus Christ himself. And then he addresses sexual immorality in the church. The, uh, he was talking. there was a specific case that he addresses and uh, even says in the middle of that, he says, I don't even want you associating with people like that. And I told you that before, but I, I need to clarify something. He goes, I don't mean don't associate like that with people in the world. He says, you're going to run into people like that all the time. The world is immoral. I mean, don't associate with people like that in the church. It's got to be judged in the church. You don't have anything to do with judging, judging sexual immorality outside the church. Okay, but we can't, there is a standard uh, by which we judge each other in the church. We've got to hold each other accountable, right? We're not just supposed to live our lives quarantined from the people God's called us to reach. Okay, Uh, if we have time, I'll come back to that, but I don't think we're going to have time. There's a few more things I'd like to say about it in light of a conversation I recently had, but I'll save it. It'll come up again sometime in the future anyway. In the middle of, of writing uh, what he writes about sexual immorality, he urges uh, the brethren not to sue one another, not because lawsuits are inherently evil or sinful, but because here we are proclaiming allegiance to a higher form of government, that we live our lives by a higher standard, that we should not need godless courts to intervene in disagreements with brothers that we should be able to work this out with the Holy Spirit indwelling all of us. We should be able to work this out without secular courts. If there's a cause that, that might cause somebody without Christ to sue, we shouldn't sue. Um, then he starts writing about marriage. He recognizes that marriage is from God, and he, but he thinks it can be a distraction from sold-out service to God especially in view of the times he was living in. Remember that phrase, in, view of the, in light of the, this present distress. I think it better that you remain such as I am. But he doesn't forbid marriage. Uh, his message, uh, again, you, you don't want to be trite or dismiss everything he writes, but I think you could boil down a lot of what he's saying. Is Look, don't get too focused on your marriage or on your singleness. You live for Christ regardless of your marital status. Keep Christ at the center. <clears throat> then he spends some time addressing matters of conscience, what we might call gray areas, things that are not universally considered sin or listed or, or named as sin, but might be sinful in cert- certain situations. And, and the, the example Paul always uses is eating meat sacrificed to idols. That was a big deal back then, and it's something that we really don't deal with now. I still think that probably the best analogy in our society is alcohol. You know, think you can't find a scripture that says Christians sh- can't drink because it's a sin, but there's plenty of reasons Christians shouldn't, and lots of situations where they situations where they absolutely shouldn't. Okay, cultural deals, uh, and his, his he urges an approach. Uh, that simply boils down to imitating Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ laid down a lot of his rights, and he had some because of who he was and who he is. But he laid those rights aside, those privileges aside, so that he could concentrate on his responsibilities and doing the things that he did to pour himself out, give himself completely to us. So it it's really should never be a question of, does the Bible forbid this, uh, but more Uh, how will my doing this affect my brother? And how will my doing this affect my ministry? And is it worth it for momentary pleasure just to enjoy my liberty? And he ties this attitude of self-denial in with our responsibility to support those who minister the gospel. And he makes it clear that he's not just, uh, that he's preaching and serving with a pure heart. He's talking about financial support. You know, don't muzzle the ox. You should support those uh, uh, who are are preaching the gospel. But then he stresses, I'm not saying this to get something from you. I'm really not. I just want you guys to, I want your heart to be in the right place. Uh, And considering what's been poured into you, you really should respond generously. And he's saying not just to him, but to other people who minister to them. Then he talks about head coverings. That was a fun one, wasn't it? We talked about head coverings, and where we, or where I at least, landed on this uh, was was that it is important to reinforce the difference between men and women. This is a distinction that was being blurred in S- Corinthian society at the time Paul was writing this letter. It was tied in with the worship of Dionysus, where the men would grow their hair specifically to look like women, and the women would cut their hair specifically to look like men. And the whole message of head coverings really... Uh, really centers on the idea that there needs that distinction needs to be maintained because God created man and woman equal essence different roles then he explains uh, the in the same chapter the proper way to observe the Lord's Supper celebrate the Lord's Supper he's and, and his stress there was was saying that this is an ordinance, a ceremonial ordinance that's given uh, by the Lord with deep spiritual significance. It's not, there's nothing wrong with fellowship meals. There's nothing wrong with feasts. But that's not what the Lord's table is. The Lord's table is, is, is an ordinance, or depending on your definition of the word, even a sacrament that Jesus has given us, not just to memorialize his death, but to celebrate his resurrection and us being part of his body. Then he spends three chapters... Although he didn't write it in chapters, but it's been divided into three chapters. The next three chapters are where Paul has been writing about the spiritual gifts. I include the love chapter as part of the conversation on spiritual gifts, because it absolutely is. Uh, And then with special emphasis on tongues. And uh, that's what we did the last uh, two weeks. And then the last part of chapter 14 addresses women speaking in church and how that fits into the larger question of order in the church service. And that is a minefield I only want to walk through once. So if you want to hear what that's about, download last week's message. And then as a wrap-up for this letter, he delivers this masterful dissertation on the resurrection. And what I kind of want to do, I'm not going to, but what I kind of want to do is just read this whole chapter. It's that good. But... Taking everything that comes before, it's like Paul is letting them know, look, I, you know, I, I've spent, this, this is a long letter. I haven't blown you off. I've taken your concerns seriously. I take your questions seriously. I respect them, and I'm giving you answers that show how much I respect you. I've given you substantive answers to all the questions you sent me. I've, I've told you. I've given you some meaty stuff about uh, sexual relationships, about marriage, about uh, order in the church, about tongues, interpretation, and prophecy. Uh, but as I wrap this up, let me remind you what the gospel is that I preach, and then brings everything right back to the center. This is what's really important. This is what's really at the center of Christianity. Now, what's, what's important To recognize is that his audience, that some of the people he was writing to, that this letter was going to be circulated among, did not believe in the resurrection. They believed in Christ. They had made a confession of faith in Christ, but did not believe at least in the bodily resurrection of the dead. Perhaps they did believe in miracles. They had seen healings. They had seen the gifts in operation. And maybe they found the teachings of Jesus, as delivered by Paul, compelling, and uh, worth emulating, and maybe their own lives had improved in terms of personal happiness after they had expressed their faith in Christ. But they had this uh, hazy or nebulous view of life after death that seemed to have more to do with the release from the body. Uh, It was a very Eastern idea. Uh, it's the idea that's still very prevalent in Buddhism and Hinduism and I'm sure several other uh, manifestations of Eastern religion, that we don't maintain any sort of identity, that we're just released from the body, and that usually includes becoming sort of one with a, a giant ball of spiritual enemy uh, enemy uh, energy that is God, okay? And that true, that kind of truth is the enemy of true truth. So their focus as believers, as Christians even, was on the here and now. This is what Christianity is about. It's about my life being better because Jesus is in it. It's about, it's even adhering to certain uh, moral considerations and following the teachings of Jesus. And Paul certainly has a lot to say about the here and now. But his response here, like I said, is magnificent. After some early verses uh, attesting to the historical fact of the resurrection, you know, he talks about, look, Peter saw him, then the other 12, uh, the rest of the 12 saw him, and then 500 people saw him at once, and you can check because most of them are still alive. He's not saying you know, 500 people saw him at once, can't take my word for it, they're all dead. He goes, all right, most of them are still around. They can testify to this. Um, and they said, and finally, I saw him. I've met the risen Christ. But here's where he says, we'll pick this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we'll, be, we'll pick it up in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, And we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Jesus Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then all of those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. This is so crucial to a proper understanding and appreciation for our faith. Does Jesus promise an abundant life? Does he? Yes, he does. Does that abundant life include the here and now? It absolutely does. But abundance in this life, even at its best, even the fullest manifestation of the abundant life here, is, can never be more than just a taste of, of what awaits us there. Even to the extent that we experience the best this world has to offer, listen, within the confines of our faith. I'll come back to that phrase in a minute, or a few minutes. If, if we experience the best this life has to offer within the confines of our faith, we are still ultimately miserable if this is all there is to it. He writes about how Christ, next, the next thing he writes about it is how Christ is going to rule and reign, and he will subdue all enemies. And the last enemy to be subdued is death itself. I always like to point that out. I've mentioned it in, in funerals. I did a funeral yesterday, and I didn't mention this. I went a different direction. But, you know, death is a universal experience. Apart from, from those who are alive at his return, death is an appointment we all have to keep it shouldn't it shouldn't take in. i mean historically <laughs> the evidence points to the fact that everybody who has ever lived is going to die or has died and yet it's still a tragedy when it touches us when somebody close to us dies friend family member when we consider our own impending death why shouldn't we just be okay with that no because death is an enemy, that's a natural response to the enemy. It's always going to be tough. That's the last enemy that's going to be subdued. Now, again, I love I love the illustration that uh, uh, what was his name? I want to say it's something like Barnhouse, but I don't think that was it. Somebody correct me if you can remember the guy's name. Great illustrator, and he was the guy who was writing. Uh, he was driving uh, his daughter. They were on They were uh, on their way to uh, the, to bury his wife, children's mom. And uh, they're in the funeral procession. And uh, the little girl asks this, uh, this minister, whose wife has just died, if Jesus died for us, why did mommy have to die? Now, how do you answer? You know, this girl's 10 years old or something like that. You know, how do you going to answer in a way that means something to this little girl without getting too deep theologically? He so said, about that time, this truck passes them. And he says, do you see that truck? If you had to be run over... Would you rather be run over by that truck or by the truck's shadow? He says, well, by the shadow. Why? He says, well, she said the shadow wouldn't hurt. He says, that's what Jesus did. Jesus took the truck of death running over him so that all we experience is death's shadow. It's still an enemy, you understand, but we don't experience death like Jesus experienced. We don't experience death as an end. It's a difficult doorway we have to pass through, Right? So he'll subdue death, and then he delivers the kingdom to the Father. And there's one verse that's a little confusing here, and, and uh, I, I want to, in case you've been reading through this and you got to it and scratched your head, I just want to talk about it for just a minute uh, or so. In uh, chapter 15, verse 28, it says, And now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. What's, uh, who's, there's too many hymns in there as... Uh, Jesus Christ subjecting himself to himself. No, of course, he's, he's subjecting himself to God. But wait a second. The Trinity, this is in the manifest kingdom. Uh, Jesus is co-equal with God. I think, and most scholars agree, by the way. Let, in fact, let me read. There's a great commentary. I love this Bible. This is my new Hayford Bible. And uh, the commentary on this verse simply says, the goal of history and the consummation of the covenant will occur when the kingdom is delivered up to God, when creation will be completely free of all dissident, anti-life forces. Once this redemptive task is completed, the saving, mediatorial role that Jesus assumed will be laid aside. Meaning, we've always known Jesus as our Savior. The giver of grace we need to operate in this life while we are still manifestly here, still in these bodies, still in the presence of sin. And what does he do? What is his role? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. We won't need him as a mediator then. You understand? We will be, I heard this from a guy, I wish I could remember who it was because I want to give him credit we were having a conversation about this, about salvation from sin. And he said, you know, we have what Jesus did that affects us now. He, his his uh, death saved us from the punishment of sin. His life saves us from the power of sin. The resurrection will free us from the presence of sin. And when we are free from the presence of sin, we no longer need Jesus as a mediator he is still God he is still God the son but he no longer needs to mediate between us and God because there is the the consummation of the kingdom all right that's all I'm going to say about that now it's worth it's worth uh, spending some time thinking about meditating on praying about and appreciating but then I want to get through this look at this beginning in verse 29 otherwise what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in the Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> and this is what I'm talking about within the confines of our belief. We do experience joy and abundance as believers in this world. But you know what? There is, a, there is built into this. A, a self denial. We know that we are going to deny ourselves certain pleasures because they're wrong, even if they're legal. And all I really mean by that, you know, if, and again, this is for the sake of conscience, it's for the sake of others, and it's for the sake of obedience. There are things that it would be easy and fun and enjoyable for us, but we don't consider doing them because they're wrong. We might be confronted with a situation where it would be easy to cheat to get ahead in, my, in, in a business. It would be easy to steal because somebody left a bag of money or a wallet sitting there. Uh, it would make us look better to knock somebody down. You know, there, there are plenty of opportunities to... That's why Paul wrote so much of what he did here and other places about sexual sin because there's so many opportunities. And why is it so prevalent? Because people enjoy it. But we don't do that. Why? Because we're Christians. You know, I know a lot of states still have laws about adultery on the books. Nobody enforces that anymore. You can get away with it legally, but it's the wrong thing to do. He's addressing people here who, by and large, are committed to living their lives as Christians. And this is why they wrote Paul a letter in the first place. They want to make sure they're doing it right. They want to give him the opportunity to straighten them out where they were doing it wrong. They're saved, and they enjoy their Christianity. They enjoy the benefits of of, of being a Christian. Uh, But they are in the midst of a society that, guess what? Very much enjoys the Christless life. You know, I uh, I got into reading Francis Schaeffer years ago. I still haven't read all of his stuff, but I've got it. And uh, one of the things that he was the best at was talking about this breakdown, what he called the existential dichotomy, that mankind was in the middle, middle of this existential crisis where there was this deep need that was unsatisfied because they had adopted such a secular lifestyle but they didn't want to subjugate their desires and their sinful proclivities to any outside law so they looked for something that could be spiritual to satisfy that longing without controlling or governing their bodies and their desires and what he when he talked about man in existential crisis what he was really talking to who he, his his target audience was the unhappy atheist people who had insisted that they had no need for God and were miserable as a result. What, we, what Paul was dealing with here, and what we still have to contend with, is the happy atheist, the happy pagan. They are out there. They're not just pretending. Now, ultimately, they are going to be unsatisfied. I pray that they, that they come to something, whether it's a crisis existential or otherwise that brings them that causes them to search for something else but you know this has been going on forever this isn't something new remember uh, asaph uh psalm 73 remember i think it was 73 somebody correct somewhere around there's it. It it a few that he wrote but he says "I'm you know, scratching my head i'm looking around i see the the uh the fatness of of, of the of the unbeliever uh, the, the the pagan uh and they're they're enjoying their life their life is easy and I look at, uh, look at your people, and I, and I wonder, what's, uh, what's, what's wrong? What, how is this man allowed to prosper? Their life is good, and our life is hard sometimes. And he says it almost caused him to slip until he went into the sanctuary. And then it made sense because he saw their end. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. Look. Look don't trust in the happiness and the joy of this life. Even when it comes from Christ, this isn't what it's all about. The momentary joy, as short as this life is, it's not worth giving up everything we give up if this is all there is. But it absolutely is worth it because there is something after this. And it's heaven or hell. And not only that, he challenges him this way. Back to verse 29, it says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then? Are they baptized for the dead? This is another head-scratcher. What's he talking about? Baptism for the dead. Uh, there are still people who do that. Uh, the Mormons do that. Mormons are big at baptism. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll go through their, the books, and especially their ancestors, because Mormons are big on family, and they'll say, you know what? We're not sure so-and-so was ever baptized in the temple. We're not sure... They did this. And so what they do is they baptize by proxy. For somebody who died 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, it's usually the baptism by proxy for, for dead ancestors. And Paul is not endorsing this. And I know it's not just the Mormons. I mean, he mentioned the Mormons. This didn't pick on Mormon Day, all right? There are other, there are other um, branches that, that do this, I'm sure. And clearly they, some of them were doing it back then. Paul's not endorsing this at all. What he's saying is, out of one side of your mouth, you're saying you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And yet you turn around and you baptize for the dead because deep down inside, you know there is. Every one of us knows there is. We have this deep sense, this deep knowledge that this life isn't all there is. And if you really don't believe in the resurrection, then why are any of you baptizing for the dead? It makes no sense. Your baptism meant a lot to you because of the conversion it brought about in your life in the here and now, but it can't possibly change the life of somebody who's already dead. But you do it anyway. It's still wrong, but you're doing it because deep down inside you know there's a resurrection. That's my take on that verse. Then he talks about our resurrection bodies. See, they couldn't see, when they, when they did consider resurrection, it was a purely spiritual thing for them, escaping from the body. They could not see the benefit Because they knew what a decaying corpse looked like. And they're like, why would we want to reanimate this dead, decaying corpse? When they considered bodily resurrection, you know what they pictured? Come on. Zombies. Yeah. That's probably what they pictured. Zombies. It is. So it's rather, it's it's more antiseptic. It's more sterile if we just picture a spiritual resurrection. And then Paul answers them with this great illustration that I want you to think hard about. Because he talks about uh, sowing a seed, and he said, "Man, you've got this all wrong. You take this seed, this dried out, essentially dead piece of corn or wheat, but you put it in dirt, and what it turns into is not a prettier seed, but a plant that is bearing more. What is the what? You compare a kernel of corn to a cornstalk." They don't look alike at all. I mean, if you know where to look, you're going to find other kernels of corn. But that whole plant comes from this one kernel. Or think about an oak tree that comes from an acorn. It's incredible what comes out of just these seeds. Now imagine if your body, as complex and beautiful some of you are, (laughs) picture your body as a seed And when it germinates in the ground and is raised from the dead, what is that going to look like? Not just a... Can you even imagine? The difference between an acorn and an oak tree is probably nothing compared to the difference between this body when it dies and the resurrection body. It's not just going to be younger, prettier. There's something fantastic about it. And I don't know what it is. And you don't either. And I'm going to give you scriptural proof here for that in just a second. Uh, But let's look at this beginning in verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man from dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And it is the heavenly man... And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Wow. He's not just talking about acting like Jesus here. He's talking about us bearing his heavenly image there. Being made in his likeness. Now, quickly, you're going to look over here or you can just let me read. I'm just going to read one verse out of 1 John. Chapter 3, verse 2 says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You know, I kind of tie that little verse in with uh, what Paul said in chapter 13. We see now as through a glass darkly. We don't know what it's going to look like. What exactly is heaven going to be like? What exactly is our body going to be like? We don't know. Hasn't yet been revealed. We do know this. When we're there, we're going to be like him. Just seeing him is going to transform us. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be powerful. Those are the words Paul used right here, right? It's going to be good, but I'm okay with saying, I don't know. Just know it's going to be good. It's going to be better than anything you can imagine. I can't tell you exactly what it's going to be like. Paul couldn't. John couldn't. I can't. You can't. But it's going to be great. (sighs) So, we don't have all the details, but we do know, ought to know, that it matters more than anything else we believe that the resurrection is a reality. You know, uh, without the reality, without the assurance Of our resurrection, Christianity is ultimately pointless. That's true. Without the assurance of a resurrection, and this is exactly what Paul said, look, if there is no resurrection, we might as well go live like pagans, because let's face it, they have more fun. That sounds like heresy. They do have more fun sometimes. They don't have more joy. They don't have more fulfillment. But they do get to enjoy some things that you and I don't get to. And we're fine with that. Why are we fine with that? Because we find our life with Christ richer, but ultimately it's because we know we're going to stand before God someday. And we want an abundant entrance into the kingdom. We don't want to hear one of these, glad you made it. We want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I believe some people in this room are going to get standing ovations. But not everybody. Without the assurance of the resurrection, Christianity is ultimately pointless. But without the historical fact of Christ's resurrection, there's no possibility for Christianity. These are the two points Paul is making. You're kind of saying you believe Jesus rose from the dead. But if you say there's no such thing as bodily resurrection, that means Christ wasn't raised either. You have to start with the fact, the historical reality of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. He did. And that means that everything he taught was to. uh, True, praise and worship team, you can be coming on up here. Because I really am wrapping this up. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we can believe everything that he taught. And one of the things that he taught, one of the things he said is that he is coming back for us. He said we would be with him forever and we would be like him. Look, I know there's another chapter Chapter 16 in 1 Corinthians, and we can maybe glance at it next week, but there's, it's mostly personal greetings. Remember to say hi to so-and-so. Remember welcome so-and-so when they come into your midst. Uh, these people that I'm with also say hi. And I love these things because it's just, a, it, it, once again, it's this mark of authenticity. You know, if somebody's just trying to write a book to change people's minds in religion, they probably would not include details like that. But what I love about chapter 15 is without, he never comes out and says, because he, does, he wouldn't mean this. He's not saying, you know what? Here's what, here, here's what I, I love. I love that chapter 15 comes after 14 chapters. Because Paul could have written a letter and said, you know what? Don't worry about these other things. They don't matter. The only thing that matters is the resurrection. You're saved, right? Right? and we're all going to die. The main thing you've got to know is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. Don't worry about the rest of it. But he doesn't do that. So let me answer these questions. Why do, you need, why, do I want you, why do I want you to have the answer to these questions? Because they're important. Because you are called to live a certain way. It brings glory to God. It brings rewards to you. It blesses you. But it also sends a message to the world that you are different, that Christ has made a big difference in your life. So here's what you do. And here's how you do it. Here's the proper way to relate to people in your community. Here's the proper way to conduct yourself at the Lord's Supper. Here's the proper way to dress. Here's the proper way to wear your hair. Here's the proper way to order the service. Here's what the gifts are like, and here's what the gifts are for. Now, having said all that, let me remind you what's at the center of this. None of this matters a bit if there's no resurrection of the dead. So shame on any of you for thinking there is no resurrection, for preaching that there's no resurrection, and living like there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection... Let's dump this whole thing. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But there is a resurrection. And so every sacrifice we make is worth it. Paul, and I'm not going to say Paul didn't enjoy the abundant life, but Paul spent a lot of time in prison, getting beat up, shipwrecked, all these things. He, li- he made a list that would, sa- it would scare most people off the mission field out of the ministry, out of Christianity. And then his response was, you know what? When I count up all these things, it's really, it's almost, I'm almost embarrassed mentioning it. It's so unworthy to be compared with the joy that awaits me. Man, I want us to all have that attitude. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.